Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Imposter, the podcast dedicated to making science more fun and engaging. And you know what? Actually, I'm going to throw in possibly enjoyable for you, the listening audience. Anyway, I'm your host, Amir Fogel, and today we're going to continue the series we started in episode four about products containing animal ingredients in them. But before we get to the main event, I actually have a small little surprise for you all because you've been so goddamn good, you sexy minxes. You see, we are honored to have Duncan Morton back with us on the podcast. Duncan is a blogger at thoughtyououghtknow.blogspot.com. Uh, I will put links to that blog on Facebook, SoundCloud, and my own blog, um, and it's a really good blog. I highly suggest you check it out. I'm saying that because he is my friend, but also because legitimately it's a very well-run blog. Anyway, Duncan's been doing a reoccurring segment for us every now and then, which is a little snippet into the mind of Duncan and what bothers him in regards to the intersection where science and society meet. So without further ado, let's find out what's bothering Duncan this week. Hey guys, it's Duncan again, back with part two of the rant I started last week when I talked about poaching. Today, I want to talk about shark finning, and it's going to be a bit different. See, last week was more rant than info, I felt, so today I'm going to switch it up and focus on the info side a bit more, see how that goes. But I want you to know, I'm still f***ing pissed off about shark finning, because it's inhumane, cruel, and if you partake in the practice, I firmly believe that your punishment should involve having your hands and feet hacked off before you are thrown in the woods to die. Not just like the neighborhood woods, or like those little bits of forest they have around residential areas either. I'm talking like deep in the Canadian tundra, Siberia, Congo, outback type wilderness shit here. It doesn't have to be a forest really, just somewhere really far away from civilization. Okay, so shark finning is one of the major threats to shark populations and therefore ocean health that exists today, along with bycatch, uh, trophy fishing, which I really can't stand, and government-authorized culls. I'm looking at you, Australia. With 39 species of elasmobranchs, a group that includes sharks, skates, and rays, listed as threatened by the IUCN Red List, any practice which actively targets these species can be incredibly ecologically damaging. So as apex predators, sharks exert top-down controls on their ecosystems, which help to regulate fish populations and maintain ecological balance. Removing these predators can have disastrous consequences for the ecosystem, such as a trophic cascade, which I think Amir discussed a few episodes ago. Shark finning is the process of hacking and slicing off a shark's fins, mainly for use in food such as shark fin soup, before discarding the remainder of the shark's body. Now, oftentimes, this is done while a shark is still alive, and then the mutilated animal is then pushed overboard where they sink and are either eaten or slowly suffocate to death. So this practice is popular because it's easier to carry loads of shark fins than it is to bring back the whole animal because of weight and space uh, considerations. As I said, these fins are mainly used in shark fin soup, which is a delicacy in Asian cultures, particularly in China, where it is popular for celebrations. It's used kind of like how we drink champagne in the West to celebrate. Our, the fins add little to no flavor to the dish and are included basically just for their texture and for cultural reasons. Now going back to the traditional medicine crap from last episode, 
the fins are also believed to increase sexual potency, prevent heart disease, increase your chi, lower cholesterol, and prevent cancer. But there is zero scientific evidence that the cartilage in shark fins does anything at all medically beneficial. In fact, shark fin soup contains fewer vitamins, or vitamins, than a bowl of vegetable soup. Now, while recent years have seen a decline in the popularity of shark fin soup, due in large part to commercials and campaigns featuring celebrities and athletes uh, condemning the practice, particularly Yao Ming, shout out, and an increasing number of countries have enacted or proposed bans on the sale and possession of shark fins or the soup, including China, finning is still an issue due to the demand for and cost of shark fin soup in Asian countries, where it can go for as much as $100 a bowl. Black market shark finning and trading of shark fins is sadly common in some South and Central American countries, particularly Costa Rica, which is usually really good at environmental issues. So, the issue of shark finning is not likely to vanish unless there's a cultural change in the countries buying the fins, which is really irritating and sad. So, sorry about that, but if it's true. Okay, that's all I have to say about shark finning. I will maybe be back at some point if Amir consents. Thanks for listening to me ramble. If you want to see more of my stuff, I have a blog, Thought You Ought to Know, on blogspot.com. Take it away, Senor Fogel. Wow. Well, alright then. That was, as always, educational and enlightening and seemingly terrifying and profane. In fact, I think you've set the bar higher for yourself now, Duncan, because you've added threatening the audience, uh, or possibly someone in the audience that, you know, eats shark fin soup, um, to chopping their arms and legs off. But hey, you know what? I don't judge. I don't judge. That's cool, man. That's why I like, I like having you on the show, because I'm terrified of you. Uh, but seriously, thank you for that segment. As always, it's a pleasure, and you, of course, are always welcome on the show. Alright folks, let's get into it. Today, we'll be talking about the elusive yet popular and commonly used product called... Shellac. 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 But you can call me Jimmy. Anyway, for those of you that have heard of shellac before, my apologies if this episode is a bit of repetition for you. Uh, maybe you'll learn something new. Fingers crossed. I'm pulling for you though. Now, for those of you that have never heard of shellac before, Prepare to have your mind blown while simultaneously making you disgusted and compulsively question what other crap is in everything that surrounds you in your everyday life. Now, am I being overly dramatic? Is this going to be another episode involving more history than science? Are cephalopods the only marine animal that can shart? And finally, is the main reason I'm doing this podcast because I like talking like a news reporter? Find out the answers to all of these questions on this week's episode of The Imposter, continuing the animal ingredient series, The Secret Life of Shellac. We live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we I mean the general public, if it's something that, oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be. 
because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around us. It's in us. The knowledge of science is power. It gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know. It's about how science everybody welcome back and thanks for tuning in and I just want to get this out of the way now yes this is my natural hair color so as I said in the intro today we're continuing the series on products sourced from animal ingredients now in episode 4 we discussed the history of animal products in glues and adhesives this week we're gonna be diving into the titillating world of shellac I really I really like that adjective to fully appreciate the reason behind the widespread use and application of shellac, we need to first answer the question, what the H-E double boomerang is shellac? Okay, so shellac refers to the final stage purified form of a resin produced by the lac insect, also known by its Latin name, lacifer laca, which also might be a butchering of its Latin name, so, you know, keep that in mind. So this lac insect, it's a relatively small red insect that is most commonly found in India, China, I believe Thailand, um, various other nations in Southern Asia. Um, and they are interesting because they generally spend the majority of their lives, which is relatively short, it's about six months, on a single tree or, you know, neighboring trees. And I gotta say, this is especially true for the mature female lac insects, as they have no wings, legs, or eyes in that stage. Uh, so, not much mobility. But we will get into why that might be a little later on. So anyway, a brief overview of the lac insect life cycle can be described as hundreds of tiny little lac larvae emerging from this incubating chamber um, that a mature female uh, lac insect has made. It's kind of this cocoon-like resin casing that, you know, surrounds them as a sort of defense. And that casing is the lac resin. Now, this larva emerges and they spread out onto the same tree or possibly a nearby tree. And soon after they've spread, they attach themselves onto that tree and they just literally start feeding on the sap of that tree. And that sap will give them the correct ingredients to produce their own lac resin and create their own resin casing to cover themselves with. The way in which this is done is through special glands that secrete the lac resin uh, to provide the casing. All right, so it seems that the most immediate kind of goal to accomplish after attaching to the tree and start sucking the sap is to make this resin casing which is also known as a cell and it you know it's for defense purposes it's for mating purposes so it's important for the next stage in life to have a cell already uh, kind of created and done as fast as possible now I know what some of you may be thinking and don't worry these cells are in fact equipped with both breathing holes and shit holes. Uh, I don't know the actual character of these lac insects, so I can't speak to that. So 
both breathing holes and holes for shitting. We'll leave it at that, semantics aside. Now, once these insects have fully uh, kind of uh, in encased themselves into this cell, into this resinous uh, cocoon, if you will, uh, they will reach adult maturity. And the males will break through their cells and travel along this kind of highway of other lac cells. And they'll do this until they find a female lac insect cell, which the male will then enter, get his copulation on, and then die. Uh, you know, all in good fun. You know, there's, there's one little tidbit that really brings this message home. And it's the fact that the adult stage of male lac insects uh, experience at a certain point losing their mouths, evidently losing their ability to feed. So literally, their sole purpose of maturing is to have toothless sex. Uh, and actually, it's not just toothless sex, it's toothless and silent sex with a blind, legless female. That's right really bringing new meaning to the term bare essentials. So, you go, lack insect. Alright, so that is pretty much their life cycle, kind of rough rough version summed up. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to take a little minute here to tell you where the lack insects get their name from. Now, it's originally a Sanskrit word, lak, L-A-H-K, which translates to, uh, essentially, the number a hundred thousand and I'm sure you very clever folks at home may have suspected that the reason for this origin word of a hundred thousand comes from the massive quantity of lac insects that one could find swarming and blanketing a tree. So something that comes to mind is because these are swarming insects and there's so many of them what is their ecological role? What is their place in the ecosystem? And it's interesting because I think it, it is about perspective. On the one hand, because there's so many of them, they seem like they could be a bountiful source of food and energy for, you know, predators in the area. So on the one hand, that might be a plus for the ecosystem. Now, when it comes to the relationship between lac insects and trees, you know, lac insects are regarded as parasites, which is frankly because they live up to the description of a parasite, which is, you know, a relationship between two organisms where only one organism is benefiting. However, I actually think it, it's slightly worse, because if we bring in human cultivation of these insects into the mix, we have this sort of menage a trois where two organisms, the humans and the lac insects, are both solely benefiting from the relationship with the same tree. So yes, sucks for that tree. And I guess actually, especially because there's only a select number of trees and shrubs that these lac insects are found on. I suppose it maybe have something to do with those trees and shrubs producing the right type of sap. I don't know. Uh, anyway, so there's actually a lot of really cool stuff about these lac bugs out there. I'm gonna post some stuff onto the blog when I put up the supporting information for this episode. Um, but yeah, you know, you're free to Google as, as well. But anyway, this brings us to the next section about the lac resin that is harvested and made into shellac. Alright, so I think it's only fair to start this section off by giving a little bit of credit to the harvesting process. Uh, 
And the reason I say that is because it's actually the harvesting process that is responsible for many different types of variations in the final product of shellac. And, you know, this is done through different harvesting times, through different harvesting techniques, and all of the resins that are harvested and collected from those different ways of harvesting and collecting them are given their own special names. Now, it's also important to note that females are, by and large, the main producers of lac resin in the industry. Now, some people think that this is because female lac insects start pumping out lac resin like uh, exploitative overseas sweatshops, just boom, 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 uh, kind of after they've been fertilized by the males. Now, uh, another interesting kind of fact to consider is that they seem to be more abundant or relatively abundant than males are. So we learned earlier that the origin of the word lac comes from the number 100,000, which is in reference to the, you know, crazy number in swarms of lac insects. Well, it might surprise you, my friends, that there are some estimates that put around 300,000 lac insects being used for every 2.2 pounds of lac resin produced. So the actual technique in which the lac resin is harvested through is done by chopping off branches and twigs that are encrusted with the lac resin, uh, which will be those insects' cells that we talked about, the multitude of cells that they disperse throughout different trees. And what they'll do is they'll take all the chopped off branches and they'll send them off to a processing facility where the lac resin is collected and then it's crushed. Um, and after it's crushed, they, they wash it very thoroughly to get rid of any of, you know, excess dirt, excess wood, twigs, um, any dyes from the actual resin, uh, any insect remains, etc., kind of all, all that jazz. And they'll, you know, crush it and wash it again. And now the lac is finally ready to be made into its final product of shellac. Now, there are a few different ways to make shellac. The newer, kind of more industrial approach is either to use a melting process using a machine uh, or to use a solvent extraction technique. Now, the more traditional approach is by taking the crushed, washed, and eventually dried lac resin and kind of putting it up into a long, large bag made from cloth, um, which kind of looks like a sock, actually, and then hanging that at an angle. And then they will build a fire under it, with the general principle being that the resin will melt and ooze out of the many different pores of that sock-like bag. Alright, so then the melted lac is collected and it's poured onto a hard surface, and then it's cut into a bunch of smaller pieces for manufacturing. Now, a good way to visualize this uh, that really helped me is kind of thinking of the show Breaking Bad, where they're making, you know, their batches of meth, and they pour it onto a hard, flat surface, and they break them into smaller pieces. Well, that's pretty much what this last little process of producing shellac is. Um, so, there you go, visual. Instead of blue meth, it's red uh, shellac. Take the blue pill, take the red pill. What if Morpheus talked like Woody Allen? The Matrix was actually some obscure little quirky indie film. And that's a million dollar idea right there. But anyway, 
So that's essentially how lac resin is harvested and cultivated into making shellac. Now that we have the final product, this kind of this waxy and sticky and sappy substance, uh, the, the question that remains unanswered is, what is shellac actually used for? Or rather, used in. <laughs> Alright, so what is shellac actually used for? Well, today you can find it in all corners of the market. Because it's so commonly used, I'm going to have to break it up into different categories. The first category is home improvement stuff. So it's been kind of used for sealants, furniture polish, uh, shoe polish, wood stainer, floor wax, certain adhesives, uh, coating for tin foil, or for you folks that speak English completely wrong, aluminium foil. Um, it can be found in some fertilizers even. I mean, there's just, it's, it's almost endless. There are tons of home improvement products that have shellac as an ingredient. Um, now, another category is the medical field. And so, uh, for medicine, it's been used as the kind of coating for pills. So, you think about that every time you take a pill. I believe that there was some evidence of it being used in dental procedures as well. And interestingly enough, a possible embalming substance. That's right, a 2011 study by Al-Hayani Hamdi Abdelaziz Badawood Aldequal and Badir published in the Journal of Animal and Veterinary Advances titled Shellac a non-toxic preservation for human embalming techniques. And basically, they, they found that shellac was a good and solid alternative to current, uh, more toxic embalming techniques. And, and by that, I mean the use of chemicals that are toxic. Uh, off the top of my head, and limited knowledge of embalming, I would say formaldehyde. Uh, now, I, I've put a link to the study on the blog post for this week for the supporting information, so check it out if you're interested. And I would encourage anybody and everybody to, you know, give it a shot. Try try reading some nice peer-reviewed literature. You may just find out that you freaking love it. That's like your calling in life. I mean, highly unlikely, but you never know. You never know. Um, all right, so that's about all for the medical field. Now, the last category I'm going to lay out uh, is beauty and cosmetics, and there's a lot of products that contain shellac. Um, hairsprays, shampoos, lipsticks, mascaras, nail polish, etc. I mean, again, the list goes on. So we have a few of these different examples, the home improvement and medical and cosmetics, you know, these industries that use shellac in their products quite frequently, um, but that's not the whole story. So prior to a few months ago, I had only known shellac as a wood stainer. So you can imagine my surprise when I was reading the back of the packet of yogurt-covered peanuts I was recreationally consuming and found shellac listed as an ingredient. Naturally, I was just a little bit worried that I was eating a large amount of very tasty, actually, wood stainer. And this might be, I don't know, advised against, possibly? So, I looked it up and found that actually there are many food items that contain some form or another of shellac. The most common use in foods is as an outer coating on fruits and veggies and also uh, apparently coffee beans. Um, and in a similar extent, it's used as a coating or a glaze 
on a staggering amount of candy products. I'm just going to say this right now. Chocolate is a subcategory of candy. Candy is the umbrella term, and then you can divide into subcategories. Chocolate, lollipops, cotton candy, whatever you want to do, but it is part of the candy term. There is no separate category of chocolate. And this is very important. This is why I'm mentioning it now, alright? This is like life or death stuff here. Dramatic pause. Um, okay, so we have all these products on the market. We have the sealants, the wood stainers, the possible embalming substance. I mean, these are all examples of products that I generally probably don't associate containing ingredients that should be used in food products. Um, I don't know if that's just me. Now, it happens that, you know, here we are, there's a ton of food products that actually use shellac. And not only that, but they rely on it. I mean, what a, what it seems to be the reason that they use it on fruits and veggies is as a coating to make them more shinier and appealing for buyers. So shellac is actually part of the marketing campaign, in a sense, for fruits and veggies. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I think it also might contribute to increasing their shelf life and freshness, but I don't know. Um, anyway... Because they are used in, in other products that might not be as appealing to associate with food products and edible things. And so I think for this reason, some manufacturers were kind of led into misleading, possibly, or, or hiding the use of shellac in their products. And I would say this is definitely applicable to the candy makers that use shellac because sometimes they'll use shellac and call it confectioner's glaze. And there is a website that I'm including in the uh, supporting information for this episode that kind of lists a lot of the common candy manufacturers that use shellac in their products. Um, so, hey, people got to know these things, you know what I'm saying? Uh, but if you're interested in knowing which candies use them, check on the site. All right, moving on. So we've learned about the lac insect. We've learned the resin it secretes, the harvesting of that resin, the procedure of turning that resin into shellac, and then the vast amount of products shellac is found in. So one might be led to think, for such a popular product with so many useful and great applications, surely... It's got an interesting history. And to that, I would say, that's up to you. That's whatever you consider interesting. I don't really care. But I am going to tell you the history either way. Alright, so I'm going to be honest with you. I couldn't actually find out that much about the very early use of shellac. And, in fact, I couldn't really find out that much about the actual discovery and or early development of you know, lac resin being used in societies and cultures and civilization. Now, some sources point to around 3,000 years ago um, as a point where it was documented and its use became more prevalent. Um, and, you know, they mentioned that ancient Indian and Chinese civilizations used lac resin as an adhesive to attach jewels and ornaments together to make jewelry. Uh, they also used it for weaponry, and in some cases, they would actually use the kind of red dye that the lac resin would produce as a, a form of byproduct when it was washed as a coloring dye for clothing. Uh, now, it also apparently held medical benefits back in the day. And they used to use it as a way to stimulate tissue growth and, you know, they treat other various ailments with it. Uh, it was also used uh, and mixed into a paste-like substance that was then 
kind of used to fill in holes made in the hooves of horses and cattle as a kind of temporary fix. Now, around the beginning of the 14th century is when shellac and, you know, its associated products began to really find their way into Europe. And this was done via new trading routes put in place. The bridge between Europe and Asia, you know, was beginning to be established quite firmly. And, you know, then by the early to mid-16th century, we already have well-established and documented examples of shellac production from cultivation to processing to distribution. I mean, let's just say business was booming. I mean, in these few hundred years between the 1300s and the 1600s, we saw more uses of shellac starting to emerge. I mean, it was no longer just used as dyes or, you know, for jewelry or for weapons or medicine. I mean, these were all still very popular uses, but artists and craftspeople were beginning to find the value of using shellac. Artists were using shellac as a form of special protective coating for their paintings. As a side note, I would be interested to speak to an art historian and find out what this period of time was for, you know, the history of art and uh, where shellac fits into that. All right, so we have these painters that are using shellac as a kind of protective coating. And we also have these craftspeople that are using it as a coating. But it's not just a coating, it's also a finish, a varnish for wooden furniture. And in fact, different places became known for their different styles of shellac finishes and varnishes. I mean, you have a great example where, you know, an entire style of finishes uh, that was used on all sorts of different furnitures, uh, like cabinets, is called japanned because the Japanese in particular, but also the Chinese, had a very specific preparation for their shellac-based finishes, and it was highly regarded and very popular around the entire world. I mean, the final product was so coveted that European craftsfolk began trying to imitate the Japanese style, and that's where you get the name Japanned. Now, the French also had a very well-respected style of shellac-based woodwork polishing and staining. And, you know, if you've ever read or seen or heard the term French polish, it's actually not in relation to any particular French wood or any actual product, but it's actually rather in reference to the technique used to stain those products with uh, light and thin layers of shellac. And this would give the wood a kind of glossy and delicate finish. All right, so now I want you to come with me and let's move forward to the 19th century where we have this push to try and make a transparent or colorless shellac-based finish. And this kind of quote-unquote bleaching of shellac was eventually discovered around the 1830s. And once it was discovered, it became very, very popular in the varnishing and polishing world. Unsurprisingly, it was a German that uh, created this bleaching process and, uh, you know, other brilliant minds in Germany at the time continued to perfect this colorless shellac finish, which added to Germany's prestigious reputation in the furniture industry. By the mid-19th century, Germany was the place to be. It was the center. It was the coolest kid in the high school that is Europe. And if you wanted to bleach shellac, you go to Germany. Now, the story of shellac and Germany actually continues because it was a German by the name of William Zinser 
that moved to the U.S. and opened up the first shellac bleaching operation in the States. Zinsser's operation kicked off the competition of the shellac industry in the U.S., so much so that by the 1920s and 30s, there were a handful of other manufacturers of shellac. So these manufacturers began invading the marketplace with shellac. And people started to think, well, hey, what else can we make with this? And there's numerous examples of different products that began using shellac. Uh, a great example that I like is gramophones, the, the records that were made to play music uh, between kind of the late 19th century, early 20th century, were all sourced from, you know, a shellac base. And this was used all the way up until I think the 1950s when vinyl was actually kind of uh, introduced into the recording industry and, and took over. And I'm actually going to use the introduction of vinyl as a reference point because I think it highlights an important shift um, in our modern history. And that is products that used animal ingredients were now slowly being replaced with ingredients that were synthesized in a laboratory. And I think this is a product of, you know, two world wars being fought and at least between the United States and, and the Soviet Union, fierce competition, the Red Scare era. And so a lot of wartime technology was being developed. And with that, eventually it seeps out into the kind of civilian society and lifestyle. And so, you know, these synthetic materials were starting to replace shellac in these products that were... Uh, kind of required to have a more durable plastic substance. And I think this change from animal ingredients to a more synthesized base uh, in products actually permeated through many different industries. If you uh, listen to the fourth episode about animal ingredients in glues and adhesives, we learn that, you know, they were slowly replaced by these synthesized uh, materials as well. So for better or worse, probably for better. Um, but I just want to reiterate that this was a replacement of shellac to synthesize materials for products that were looking for a more plastic and durable design. Now that said, there are still many, many products out there today that continue to use shellac. All right, you young pups, hang in there. We're about to wrap this up, but before we do, let's quickly recap. So hopefully you're coming away from this episode having learned a little bit about the resin produced from the lac insects. And, you know, the resin is processed and the final product is shellac, which is used for numerous different purposes. Now, as much as I've harped on the lac insects, I think it's important to note that there are, in fact, many other insects used for different purposes in many other various products. And if you are interested, I'd highly encourage you to go to your little Google search tab and type in insects in everyday products because you'll probably find things like carmine, which is, you know, made from a species of beetle and it's used to dye foods. And you also might find cochineal, which is another dye made from, I believe, scale insects. Uh, the Latin name Dactylipius coccus. I hopefully said that right, or I hopefully said that horribly wrong. You decide. Or, you know, someone that speaks Latin. Uh, whether you know it or not, like it or not, insects are 
all around us. Now, you maybe have made peace with the fact that you know spiders and crickets and whatever are somewhere in your house or in the corners of your room, and now you have the task of trying to make peace with the fact that you're probably actually also eating a lot more bugs than you imagined every single day. With this in mind, I'll leave you with a little food for thought. Alright, so here it is. As we learned earlier in this episode, some companies, and I guess specifically the food companies, probably do not want their consumers to know that they source some of their ingredients off insects. The example I brought up earlier about, you know, the vague or ominous... Uh, ominous? <laughs> ominous? The vague or ominous terms that are used, like confectioner's glaze, to hide the fact that you're eating bugs. However, and this is the point I'm going to leave you with, is after finding out how common insects are in various products, but especially food products, do you think that Western cultures will ever get to a point where eating insects won't be regarded as weird or disgusting? I mean, there definitely is a stigma against it, you know, if you're not Bear grills. But I'll tell you, I, I had some baked grasshoppers in Mexico City, and I'll be honest, they really, they weren't that bad. They were, they were actually quite good. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of options. I know that this is definitely something that is an issue that is going to be discussed further. Uh, I think there's some insects used in protein powders now, um, or there's at least discussion about including them in, uh, because it's, it's a form, you know, of protein and other nutrients that you can get where you don't need to source it from a very large and environmentally costly industry that is the kind of uh, meat and dairy industry. Interesting conversation topic. Maybe we'll do something in the future. Maybe not. Who knows? Uh, I would like to hear your thoughts, though. So send me an email at theimposterpodcast at gmail.com. Always looking for comments, criticisms, feedback. Whatever you got, I'm taking. Uh, last little bit, don't forget to like and share us on Facebook, especially to friends and family that you think might be interested in a podcast like The Imposter. We also put a lot of time into the supporting information for each episode, or at least the episodes that supporting information pertains to, uh, and that can be found on our blog. It's basically just links to different sites and sources that are used in the episode. Okay, last, last little thing, I promise. But if you are a fan of The Imposter, you can now subscribe to The Imposter on iTunes. Go to the iTunes Music Store, search The Imposter or Fogel, subscribe and you will get new episodes each week. Alright everybody, that's enough shameless so